You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Tuesday, May 30th, 2017, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Cara Santamaria. Howdy. Jay Novella. Ha <laughs> ha! And Evan Bernstein. You okay there, Jay? <laughs> Jay. I just want to mix it up a little oh, bit, Evan. Whew. I thought you might be choking on a carrot. Took Evan by surprise. <laughs> Has anyone Scared ever me. choked and died on a podcast? I don't think so. Uh, you mean like they died while they were recording? Yeah. You know? oh. Don't you think they would hang up and like seek emergency services? I hope so. Well, that, don't forget that that would require a conscious decision to upload it. Yeah, that's true. Somebody yeah. else yeah, would have to do that. Right, somebody else does that. And like, oh, could he, be a live stream. He, he was kind of short this week, but yeah, we'll it put it up like, anyways. <laughs> Perhaps he was dictating. <laughs> did you guys hear about this dog who is like an editor for seven journals? Yes, yeah. I did read dog. about that. <laughs> yeah, I guess that won't be in science or fiction today. Olivia Dahl. No, it's not. Olivia Dahl. Apparently she's the editor for Global Journal of Addiction and Rehabilitation Medicine. So yeah, this is this is not the first time someone's done this. I like I get these requests probably two times at least a week, where you know some journal I've never heard of, some like open <laughs> access journal, invites me to be an editor. They're just trolling for anybody at any you know institution to be on the editorial board so they could you know put it on their masthead and make it seem like they're legit. You know, so this guy submitted his dog's name as a as a. Uh, this guy's Mike Dobb is a professor of health policy, yeah, just as a goof, and then they accepted <laughs> it. So he just kept doing it, and now his dog is on seven different editorial journals. What was her name again? The dog's name? Olivia Dahl. That's a weird dog's name. Yeah. You know, how do you get on as an editor for a journal and do absolutely nothing? Like what? what the, yeah, what's and that like about? not have an email address. <laughs> it's all about just having your name on the site to make it seem like it's. These are the fake. Pay to publish journals that we right. were talking about. Yeah, recently. And why not have let your dog have an email address? I mean, you're going to respond for them anyways. Kind of doesn't matter. Hell, the uh, there are all kinds of Twitter accounts for all sorts of inanimate objects and dead people yeah. and all sorts of stuff yeah. out there. I know somebody had got like a degree in homeopathy for their cat. <laughs> <laughs> now I really, now I really want Molly Novella to be an editor. Kara, what about um, Doctor Killer? It has a certain <laughs> ring to it. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> That's Kara's dog, by the way. I wonder what he would edit. What journal would he edit? Well, so uh, Olivia Dahl's research interests include avian <laughs> propinquity to canines in metropolitan <laughs> suburbs. Oh my no. god! I love it. I love it. That's hilarious. And a great word it. as well. And and <laughs> the benefits of abdominal massage for medium-sized canines. <laughs> Perfect. But you know, obviously the point is just to show how, you know, how fake these journals are. It's unfortunate because it's flooding, you know, the market with these crappy journals that and the, and those they can like just do what they barely need to do to get listed as peer reviewed, but they don't actually spend the time and money to peer review their articles. There really needs to be, I mean, that tells you, I think there needs to be a real tighter regulation of who gets to be peer-reviewed, you know? Yeah. Yeah, there is. There should be a board or uh, There is. Com- there is communities that Police there is, these things. Yeah, there is. But I guess once you get listed as peer-reviewed, they don't pay too much close attention at that point. So I was thinking not too long ago, now that fake news is here and everyone mostly is aware of it, 
Mm-hmm. How are we ever legitimately going to get rid of it? Like you, it's like you can't. bad information on the internet. Like it's we're not. Now you can't a fixture, get rid of right? it. Well, yeah, not only it it's, it's like it's a virus. It we also talk away. about this like it's new. Fake that's news right. has been around for oh, centuries. Gosh. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. For his- yeah, that's true. But it's just, it's just different now. It's I mean, different it's now because it's in a different platform. So different platform. It's accessible by more people than ever. Yeah, and we're probably a little more politically polarized um, sure. and more educated, right? So I think that it's. I don't know. I mean, obviously, or at least we no think we're fix. more educated. I think we are more educated than we were centuries ago. <laughs> Speaking as a woman, I think it's safe for me to say that we are more educated than we were centuries ago. Well, certainly. Obviously not a quick fix, but one of the things that will help is just to have changes in these cultural norms. When things are obviously fake, we make it a point to call it out as being fake. When things are obviously up to snuff and have really good, like, you know, news outlets that have really good um, ethical standards, those are the ones we choose to support. But there's always going to be bottom feeders. Yeah, but I think I have been trying to decide, like, is it qualitatively different now than it, uh, than it was. Because obviously there's always been fake news yeah. and polarizing news and partisan news, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But it does seem like it's so easy now for people to just wrap themselves in confirmation bias, right? In just oh, sure. the information that they want and on specific issues. You know, it's not like just the major political parties. If you want to believe that GMOs are bad, you can surround yourself with all kinds of authoritative sounding information that confirms that position and you feel like you understand that's again you know the the dunning-kruger guys you know Mm -hmm. wrote about that it's like the the, unfortunately people who are ignorant don't have an absence of information they have false information they have what they have something that seems it feels like knowledge but it isn't and that makes them very confident in their they're factually incorrect beliefs, you know? And, uh, and that's yeah. the worst thing. Online, you, you get into a conversation with somebody, they're like, oh, no, look at all this. And they have all of these links and facts and everything. It's all BS or it's all cherry-picked. But they think they're, they got all the information. They must be right, you know? And that's kind that's, of what I was alluding to earlier when I think people think they're more educated than they yeah. are. They, oh, they, well, that's definitely mean. true. Yeah. yeah. Kara, I have a question for you. What? What's the word? Yeah. Ooh, the word this week is a fun one, and it's a lot more complicated than it seems kind of on its surface. So the word this week is epigenetics. And it's something we talk about from time to time on the show. Um, I'm not sure how often we use the term in passing, but it's definitely something that if you try to stay up to date on science, you will see this word in print. It is not often defined. So I'm going to start with the standard definitions, Merriam-Webster, which would be the American standard. Of or relating to or produced by the chain of developmental processes and epigenesis that lead to genotype to phenotype after the initial action of genes. Okay, what? Um, or relating to being or involving changes in gene function that do not involve changes in DNA sequence. That is one we'll get to. Um, and also both um, Merriam-Webster and Oxford, whose biological definition is relating to or arising from non-genetic influences on gene expression. Both of them have a second definition in geology. Um, Apparently, if something is epigenetic in geology, it was formed later than the surrounding or underlying rock formation. Learned something new when I was researching that. So, but let's dig a little bit deeper. When we actually look at epigenetics as a whole, it's a bit difficult to fully define it unless we understand its etymology. 
So I think it's important to look back. The year was 1942. The man was Conrad Waddington, and he first coined the term when he defined the field itself. He was actually an embryologist, a developmental biologist, and ultimately he formed the epigenetics research group. Now, at that time, there were two theories. And remember, this was like the gene was well accepted to be the unit of inheritance, but we didn't know much about genetics yet. And at this time, there were two theories about um, development or embryology. There was these two interactions, preformation and epigenetics. Preformation basically said that adult characters were already there in the embryo and they just needed to develop further to grow. Epigenesis said that new tissues were actually created because of the different factors that were involved in the embryo and its expression on, right, they didn't know yet about the expression on genes. And so what Waddington does did is he combined those two things, preformation and epigenesis, and he started this whole field of epigenetics. And he, this is his quote, he referred to it as, quote, the branch of biology that studies the causal interactions between genes and their products, which bring the phenotype into being. So it really started in developmental sense. Since that, epigenetics has grown a lot, but not all researchers fully agree on its definition because researchers in different aspects of genetics and developmental biology use it differently. As a general kind of definition, though, it's the study of potentially heritable changes in gene expression that does not involve changes to the underlying DNA sequence. So it's a change in phenotype without a change in genotype. And then that in turn affects how cells read the genes. And these epigenetic changes happen a lot. They can actually lead to disease. They can even um, potentially spread to later generations, but they definitely can be reflected at different stages throughout the lifespan. And some some of the earliest examples of this were in cancer biology when we found that certain carcinogens actually changed gene expression um, by changing DNA methylation. But we've also seen examples in schizophrenia. We've seen examples in mental retardation disorders like Fragile X or Prader-Willi syndrome. We've seen it in immunity and um, a lot of pediatric syndromes as well. So it's a, it's a not a terribly new field, but it's a field that's constantly coming up with new information. And a lot of it has to do with specific changes that are happening either to the chromatin or to the DNA itself, or even sometimes to non-coding RNA that then actually has an expression that was not originally coded for in the genes. Yeah, but I think it's important to point out that what the evidence has shown is that these epigenetic changes, which largely are influencing the expression of genes, yep. they can sort of last a generation, maybe two. Yes, they they're really not very rewriting the DNA. They're not permanent. Yeah. Yes, this is or not Lamarckian. Not, or they're not extra DNA permanent heritable changes. It's And it's mainly just another layer of sort of short-term or medium-term, I guess we could say, adaptation. So like most of these studies that I've seen that show an epigenetic effect would be, for example, if uh, there is a time of abundance where there's a lot of food available, Yes, then that would cause epigenetic changes that would cause the children to grow faster because they're being born into a time of plenty of food. Or if there's scarce food supplies, like the mother is not eating as much food, then uh, epigenetic change would propagate to the children so that they're already sort of adapted to a, t a lean time. 
But then that that those effects go away in a, in a couple of generations. In a couple of generations, that's yeah. true. And one of the first studies in this area was on the Dutch famine that was from 1944 to 1945, and they found that kids that were born during the Dutch famine had um, increased rates of coronary heart disease and increased rates of obesity after their mothers were exposed to the famine early on, which is interesting. It's kind of counterintuitive. But yeah, they, they had higher disease rates when their moms were basically not getting enough nutrients during the famine. It had all sorts of epigenetic effects as they then grew older. And yes, like you said, it may last throughout their lifespan. It may last to their children possibly their grandchildren's lifespan, but um, this is not rewriting the genetic code by any stretch, and this is not uh, support of Lamarckian evolution. Which drives me crazy. When I know. When people that's, make that comparison. That's, yeah, that's what's going to like end up in bad science reporting. You know, the inheritance of acquired characteristics. Wrong. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's, that's not what it is at yeah, all. Yeah, this is an offshoot. It will happen in one or two possibly two generations. It's not being passed on the way that genes are passed on. So it's not a driver of evolution by any stretch. But a definitely very, very interesting layer on top of it. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Kara. Yep. All right, Jay, you're going to tell us all about the Mandela effect. The Mandela effect. This is one of my new favorite weirdo things that's going on out there. (laughs) This actually blew my mind. So this is a phenomenon where large numbers of people share false memories of past events. Now, mm. uh, you guys must have heard of this, right? Oh, yeah. Like they all had the same dream? Yeah, no. so check Kara. Check this out. You're going <laughs> to okay. love this. You're going to love this. So this is, this is best described by using events in pop culture because it applies so wonderfully to it. So the name of this phenomenon, the Mandela Effect, comes from a blogger named Fiona Broom. And in 2010, she described a collective false memory that she discovered while at DragonCon, which is the conference oh. we were just talking oh, about last yeah. week. Yeah, very very cool. cool. She, realized that, she realized that a lot of people that she were talking to, they all believed that Nelson Mandela died in prison in the 80s. And the fact was, he wasn't dead. And, you know, he died That's in 2013. Right. Yeah, so, he like became president of of South Africa, <laughs> Nobel right. Prize winner. I mean, yeah, right. Yeah. So the really weird thing was she discovered that people remember details of his death in the eighties, and they were the same details. She, people were remembering news clips about his funeral, his widow's speech. There were riots that they had imagined, you know, the, and the idea that that people were having these collective false memories, it spread online, it caught on, people started to, to find a lot of other things. They were misremembering or you know, people were, were discovering other things that people misremembered. And a wonderful mm-hmm. thing to use for this are movies and television shows, because it's a shared experience that we can all discuss. So let me give you guys some more mm-hmm. examples of these. Do you guys remember the show Sex in the City? Yeah, mm-hmm. I do. Yes. Kara, do you ever watch it? I did not, but I'm such a Samantha. I have no idea what that means. <laughs> Sorry. That's why my wife made me watch the whole thing. Oh, oh then you know so what that means. Yes, yes, Dave, your I'm wife so sorry. made you. Did you watch, <laughs> Talk you about watch every memory. episode of Sex in the City? Yes. You, you're, you're, why, do you the, why do you own you're, the silver DVD collection of it if your wife made you watch it? I, I know that it's Sex and the City. I well, know. there you go. How about yeah, that, Sex Steve? and the City. Right. Now, this is a good example of just a very simple, you know, people misremember the name of it or they think the idea of it saying sex in the city, it makes more sense than sex and the city. It just it just resonates better. That's that's why I think this one got screwed up. 
Yeah, I agree. Um, I yeah, think that makes right, sense. Right there, I think that's one major category of the Mandela effect, if we're going to categorize them, is that you know people alter things so that they either make more sense or that they're more pithy or they're easier to remember or they flow easier, they're easier, they roll off the tongue easier. Yeah, or that's or, what it sounds like to the ear. Like, sex in the city sounds like sex in the city when you does. say it fast. It does, yep. It does, and but but it also just you know, Sex in the City kind of makes more sense. Yeah, Sex and the City it's a little bit little bit harder to say, and doesn't make as quite as intuitive sense. So I think that people are just following sort of the path of least resistance. Right. So this Jay, exactly. this is like the whole Berenstain Bears thing, yeah. right? Yeah, it is. Where, that yeah. is the Mandela that's, effect. Yep. Yeah, everybody thought it was a Berenstain Bears because that's a normal name. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Gotcha. So that's a more of a familiarity effect. Yeah, exactly. All right, Bob, this next one is targeted to you. What did Darth Vader say to Luke after he cut his hand off? Oh, oh yeah. What's the, what's the sentence? Luke, I'm your father. Evan, what do you think? It says, no, I am your father. One geek point issued to Evan, Bob, you lose. So the world, <laughs> the world remembers it, as most people do, including myself, which is crazy, where he says, Luke, I am your father, right? Now, people that were on the set filming it, people that- Oh, <laughs> they had it too. Now, now, everybody knows in that scene that they gave him other dialogue, but Mark Hamill and James Earl Jones were in an interview about 15, 20 years ago where James Earl Jones says the line, he's like talking, he's recounting what he's thinking when he's reading the dialogue and he's like, it was a really cool interview, but- he remembered it as Luke, I am your father. Whoa. Even wow. he remembered it that way. Because <laughs> in this instance, I think what we're finding here, again, it's like what Steve was saying. It's, it's storytelling condenses it. It adds in Luke because you need to know who is the father? Who are you referring to when you, when you say, I am your father? So right. we add in, we add in the subject, you know, Luke, yeah. I am your father. Just make perfect give it context. Sense. It's self-contained right. then. It's self-contained. Yes, That's right. Exactly. It's self-contained, which is what, which is another category of Mandela effects when you take a specific phrase and turn it into a self-contained phrase. So, and you'll show other, we'll give you other examples of that. But it's like if you said, no, I am your father, kind of what, no, what, who are you talking to? Out of right. context doesn't make any sense in the, it only makes sense in the flow of the dialogue where Luke says, he told me you killed him. No, I am your father. Then it makes sense yeah. when he, you know, as a response to what Luke said. But when you're just quoting the line, you, you, it doesn't sound right. So you just, you just alter it slightly so it makes sense. It's similar to the, the, I think the best historic example is that is alas, poor Yorick. What's the rest of that line? I knew him well. I knew him well. No. I knew him well. I knew him Horatio. I knew him Horatio. Horatio, yeah. He's talking to Horatio. (laughs) I knew him Horatio. But that sounds silly if you're just quoting it as a standalone line. So people substitute in well because then it's a self-contained phrase. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Moving on to other kinds. I like those. That's good. Now, these are – now they're going to start to get creepy. Cool. (laughs) Kara, you you did, I, while we're on Star Wars, let me just go to my next one. Kara, you oh, wouldn't no. really know, right? No, right. don't give me a Star right. Wars one. I'll go. Evan, <laughs> Evan should know this one. All right. I know Steve knows it. What color are C three PO's legs? Oh, uh, well, one is gold and one silver. Wow, Evan, two points tonight. Fantastic. <laughs> so many people did not see that C three PO's right leg 
was silver below from the, the knee down. down. From the, from the knee, knee down. down. That we, is messed up. When yes. I first realized that, yeah. I was like, what? That's the yeah. only one that literally that blew me away. Because all the other ones, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I kind of remember that. Or yeah, but this one, I'm like, really? For 30 years, I missed the fact that his right <laughs> leg was silver. Well, is, are they, is it really obvious? Is it like bright yes. gold versus <laughs> yeah. bright silver? It is. When you, well, wow. yes, it is. when you see the... And even fewer people noticed that it was neon and flashing. <laughs> <laughs> and said, you know what, though, but Kara, it does... The, the, the trick of the eye here is that the silver reflects the colors around it. Yeah. And, you know, I do believe, especially in the very beginning of the movie, you don't... You, you, he's in the desert. There's a lot of things that are going to make that silver, like, not be super shiny silver but when you see like a very high resolution still from the movie yeah and i'm like literally like i still look at it and go this is a lucas you know chop job this no (laughs) i don't believe no it's but it's 100 percent the truth i think i think this is partly remember the the blue black dress yes Yes. white gold you mean white gold yeah the part well yeah the white gold no no, blue and gold versus (laughs) blue and gold Black and gold versus blue and yellow, whatever. And, but <laughs> I think this is partly that kind of optical illusion, whereas because he's all gold, whatever reflection we saw off the silver leg, we interpret it as just being gold, but with different yep. lighting rather than it actually being silver. Yep. But you're right. There are some stills where – like when he's sitting on the throne in Return of the Jedi in the Ewok village – and it's freaking silver, and there's yep. no doubt about it. It's and it is amazing that uh, you know once my mind perceived that he was gold, that was it. That was just you know I don't know if that would be inattentional blindness or just whatever, but I just did not. I, well, how much I've watched the collectively those three movies fifty times, never noticed. Oh, it. easily Crazy. never noticed that, huh? And did you notice uh, in the Force Awakens that his silver leg now is kind of this rust? Well, color? his arm was red. His arm was red. See, I got his arm and his leg confused. So I think that's <laughs> almost a, a tip of the hat to the fact that his leg was silver. I can't think of another reason why his arm was red in that. Yeah, I think movie. it was like his they- left arm was red, and he hinted at, "Oh, that's just that's a long story." Like he'll like at one point we're going to hear how yeah. his arm got replaced with a red arm, you know. But all right, let's keep moving here. Kara, have you heard? Have you heard of Mister Rogers? Of course. Do you Mr. know Rogers the theme song? Sing the song. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Is that oh, okay? Don't you, don't you don't you wish that that were the that were the <laughs> What is it? What is it? It's a, it's a subtle change, but it's significant. It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood. Uh Whoa. Now, now that's yeah, again, know. you know, this isn't I'm, really I'm, blowing my mind yet. Not, yeah, not, those, right? one, those subtle ones don't blow yeah, my it's mind. Subtle. It's like, okay, the this who cares? Yeah, all I'm right. like, okay, you're right. I was wrong. Give me one where I'm like, no fucking way. All right, all right. Give, <laughs> I got one. Her, I got one. All right, give her the Disney one. <laughs> the Queen in Snow White says what to the thing on the wall? Mirror, mirror, mirror on the mirror wall. On the wall. Who's the fairest? <laughs> nope. She of never said all? that. She never says oh. mirror, mirror. She on said the wall. magic mirror on the wall. Ah. Oh. Yeah. Interesting. Hannibal Lecter says what to the main star in the movie that they were in? Something, something. Hello, Clarice. Yeah. Hello, hello, hello again. Never said. <laughs> never said. Complete it. Con- Complete no? construct. <laughs> yeah, awesome. it's a complete construct. And it's it's in everybody's mind. Uh, have you ever had Jiffy oh. peanut butter? No, but I've had Jiff. 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 That's an easy portion, one. A significant portion of the of the population think it's say Jiffy. Jiffy. You're not no, going to no, do the really. Shack one? Or the yeah, Crossing one. Wait, wait, before, yes. we get, before we get to Shack, I want to go back to um, like Mirror Mirror and 
the Carl Sagan one, billions and billions. Right. He never oh, yeah, said he never actually That's said that. That's a classic example. Yeah. Never said yeah. hello, Clarice. Never said you dirty rat. These Aww. iconic lines, you know, we know them because of people making fun of it, either, you know, impersonators or just right right and then that's what sticks and resonates even though it's slightly off of what what the actual person said but here are here's one jay you may not have seen this in any of the lists that you looked at but it will blow your mind what's Mm. the most famous line from casablanca play it again sam frankly never said it yeah here's looking never said play it again sam he said play it again that's it no play it again sam but that's how but once the, the, oh that, that wrong phrase becomes a meme that gets in the culture, and that's what everybody remembers. So there was another one. Now, this one is, is a little obscure unless you're in our age range. But in the movie Moonraker, there is a character named Jaws that has metal teeth, and he fights James Bond a few times in different James Bond movies. There was a scene. Uh, it was the scene where I think they were going down the, uh, the ski lift. You know, they were going down the, the – uh, what do you call it? The gondola. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And Jaws like crashes with the gondola. Okay. And this little adorable blonde-haired woman comes over and helps him get out of the wreck. Yes, I remember. What do you remember about that scene specifically? He talks. He talks for the only time he says words. No, no yeah, yeah, but when Not she that smiles scene, at though. him, what happens? She has braces. Exactly. But you know what, Evan? She doesn't. And I oh, remembered seeing gosh. braces. I would have, I would have bet a dollar on that. I didn't remember braces. Yeah, come on, I don't on, know Bob. what you guys are talking about, it's right? A, no, you had to see <laughs> the movie. You had to see the movie. But I ha- I, I, this was the one that like killed me because I, that's how they connected. Why would she look at this gigantic, weird-looking dude with metal teeth? Their connection is the fact that they both had metal teeth. She had regular braces, and this guy had like razor teeth, right? But she had no braces. You no, know, I, saw, I, re- well, I rewatched razor, the video. Yeah. So there are reasonable explanations. We went over some of them. You know, we, everybody that listens to this podcast knows that human memory is utterly, incredibly untrustworthy. We're constantly, um, as we read reality, we're shifting it immediately. It gets affected by our bias. It gets affected. It gets confabulated with other memories. It's affected by all sorts of things like pop culture and, you know, even, even cultural elements that are in the mix. Um, then you hear about things. You get repetition after the fact that could destroy your memory and make you think that things are different. Probably, you know, with a lot of the things that we listed, mirror, mirror on the wall as an example, just repetition. Then that becomes reality and you forget what the real reality was. Yeah. Now, but here's the crazy. There are people that believe that the Mandela effect is caused by a one, one of, or more of these crazy ideas. One of them is that it's caused by parallel realities. You know the idea <laughs> there's countless countless versions of our own reality, you know, there's just an infinite number of earths with all this variation going on, kind of like Alter- that. alternate like universe that. bleed through. Awesome. Like, yes. Star Trek Next Generation episode with Worf yep. encounters all of the universes at once at the same time. It was great. Or sliders, that TV show sliders. So the idea here is that there's an earth that exists in another dimension that is slightly different where Mandela died in the 80s. Maybe that's the only difference. And that reality, kind of the two concentric spheres intermingle temporarily and screw up or people either experience the other reality and then that now they're on an earth that they don't originally belong to. However it happens, reality is intermingling, guys. Okay, so that, that one is, is so ridiculous, it's laughable. But there's another one that's that's a little more possible but highly doubtful, and that's the matrix idea. 
that <laughs> we're in a glitchy computer program. Why would all of these people remember a completely different reality? Like like the um, the Sinbad being in a uh, a movie about what? What was the movie that like, they like said? A gen- like Shazam. a genie, right? Shazam. Shazam. Yeah. Shazam. He was in a Shazam movie. So a lot of people remember watching the movie, seeing him in the movie. That's odd. It is odd. And now I don't buy it. I don't think it happened. I just feel like you know the oddness about it is profound because – a lot of people had the same screw up in their memory, so they're they're all being touched by these different components from from pop culture and whatever, whatever it was. All these little nudges that created this thought in all these people's minds. On Steve, that is pretty amazing, not unbelievable, yeah. but pretty fantastic. That but, we can have knowing these shared... everything we know about memory and perception, it makes, it makes perfect, perfect sense. sense. Yeah. It does. I'm not yeah. saying it doesn't, yeah. but it is. It is magical in a sense when you think about it. I hate it's to use weird. That word. It's, it's weird. weird. But like when when you get hit with the Mandela effect, it's like wow, my memory sucks. You realize yeah. it's your your memory. It's not that it's that's bad, just simplistically bad. It's constructed. Your memory is is and your perception is a constructed confabulation. The whole thing, and so it, it's and it's glitchy. And we just don't notice these little things because they're mostly 99.9% of them are inconsequential. But because we live at a time, you know, where we have a record of things, we have pictures and film and whatever, where you could go back and challenge your memory of 20 years ago, we notice it. But this has been happening throughout history, right? It's just that now we know it. Right. You can have this like we've done it on the show. It's in our family. We're remembering our dog getting hit by the skunk differently. Yeah. And you know, and maybe none of us are actually remembering that's, it correctly. That's, that's a good assumption. Though, good point. Very right. Good point. Even though Bob and I know that Steve is is half cock crazy over there, Bob. <laughs> right. Bob and I agree. But the, the, but it's funny because <laughs> because so that's if, technically I you, a mass delusion. If you if you keep if you keep <laughs> looking for this, do. this will teach you the humility that all skeptics need. I think this is a really important thing for skeptics to be able to understand and relate to because, man, when it hits you and you're like, that's not how I remember it, how the hell did that information get into my head? Mm-hmm. That's a lesson learned right there. All right. Thanks, Jay. Let's move on. So there was an interesting study that came out recently comparing the total land use for farming, and this is just in Germany. So in Germany, the, the farm use per unit of food produced through organic farming versus conventional farming. So which type of farming do you think uses more land for the same amount of food produced? Organic. Organic. By how much would you say? In this mm. study, we'll say in this study. Uh, 15% more? 20% more. 40%. No. Whoa. 40%. Two things that are interesting about uh-huh. this. First of all, it's not far off of many, many other studies which give a range of 25 to 35%. Mm-hmm. And second, that all of those are probably gross underestimates. So think about that. So, okay, in this study, they actually mixed variables a little bit. So that what they did was, uh, for part of the study, they said, all right, what does an organic diet, How what what's the land use of an organic diet versus, and the carbon footprint, they compared those two things, land use and carbon footprint of an organic diet versus a... Um, a conventional diet. And the reason why the, the 40% is, is an underestimate of the organic factor is because they also included that the organic diet has 45% less meat than the conventional diet. So even with eating 45% less meat, the organic diet still used up 40% more land. So what would it be <laughs> uh, if they did? Um, is that, is that's, that's amazing, isn't it? 
It is yeah, amazing. I mean, how it, or why, yeah. I guess I should yeah, say. Yeah, like what's the why mechanism is, there? Why, why is organic why so land? inefficient? Why does it yeah. need more land? So uh, I'll tell you. So there have been a lot of other studies. There was a good review in 2012 that re- did a meta-analysis and, and a systematic review of all the literature looking at comparing the two. And they came up with the basically 25 to 35 percent uh, more land use for organic versus conventional farming. Now that's taking all commerce. So first we have to say it totally depends on what crop you're talking about. Some kinds of crops, it's a much bigger difference than others. And, and most of those comparisons only compare the direct land use and they don't, they don't include indirect land use. And that's where the number goes way up. So direct land use just means, all right, I'm planting 100 acres of corn, organic versus conventional. How much do food do I get out of those 100 acres? You know, however, if you include set, you know, a shadow land use, as they call it, um, organic is massively higher than conventional because do you know what organic farming primarily uses for fertilizer? Crap. Fertilizer. Manure. Yeah. Manure. Crap. Yeah. manure. Yeah. Well, oh, yeah, because yeah. that's natural. Where's that coming uh, from? Yep. Cows. Right. Uh, yeah. Or animals. And how much land do you have to graze those cows or grow food to feed those cows? Lots. Yeah, yeah. lots. They also will will um, have farms go fallow. Like for they'll do rotation crops. So you have to include like one quarter of the time that, you know, 100 acres is not producing but that's that's harder to calculate because they like they'll they'll grow alfalfa or something that fixes nitrogen and they'll plow that back under the ground but some of that will also go to feed animals or will also be food so that's not that's a little bit of a squirrelier number to get at also in the long term does that actually improve yields having rotational farming well yeah then not doing it yes that's the nitrogen yeah. has to come from somewhere so okay yeah. this all comes down to the nitrogen cycle which i think we talked about briefly on the show before mm. but just as a quick recap you you when when you're talking about farming the reason why it's so complicated to really think about it is cuz you have to think about where's all the water going Where's it coming from and where's it going? Where's all the nitrogen coming from? Where's all the carbon coming from and going to? Like how much is the total carbon production? But nitrogen's the big one. That's the big input for, for, uh, in terms of, uh, producing, you know, f- producing food. And of course, the green revolution was the ability to make artificial fertilizer that is ultimately getting nitrogen from the air. Because before then, we were limited basically by how much manure there was in the world. Uh, and because that's a, that's the main nitrogen input for organic farming. Th- but think about this. So, you know, in the U.S., for organic farming is about 1% of all land. If you used farming in Europe, it's about 6%. And that's already basically using all of the fertilizer, all of the manure that we have available, you know, for farming. So we couldn't grow enough food to feed the world organically if we wanted to. There, there isn't enough natural fertilizer to do it, and there isn't enough land to do it. Mm-hmm. And another thing is, or the organic farmers always say, "Oh, yeah, there's there's less food production per land, but if we reduce our the amount of meat that we eat, an organic diet, this is this is their bullshit that where they completely mix these variables. The the study did this, but this is coming from organic propaganda. But they go, yeah, so yeah, okay, we produce twenty percent less grains, whatever per acre, but if uh, if you reduce the meat intake, 
meat consumption because organic meat farming is very small scale, then we'll have all of that land we're not using to feed all those cows. Okay, and then where's your fertilizer coming from? Because <laughs> you, not only do we not have enough fertilizer to go around now, you want to reduce it dramatically. It doesn't add up. You see how they that that strategy can't work? It looked at another way. The nitrogen input for organic farming ultimately comes from artificial fertilizer because basically we're using synthetic fertilizer to grow grain, to feed cows, to produce manure, to fertilize organic farms. That nitrogen is coming from the artificial fertilizer that's ultimately ending up on the organic farm. And if you eliminate the artificial fertilizer from the equation, the whole thing collapses. The, this notion, this fiction that we could like significantly increase how much land we're growing organically or that we could feed the world organically is utter nonsense. Right now, we're using all the, the arable land that there is. You know, we're farming on all of the farmable land that exists on the world. You know, we would have to go to, to lower and lower grade land which is going to have even worse, you know, output than than what we're currently getting or we'd have to be cutting down forests or you know what I mean, but there's there isn't any like open unused farmland out there in the world. So but they play the shell game of with the numbers, but when you actually look at the whole system and actually these studies don't even do that. They come up with the, you know, 25 to 35% or 40%. Those numbers are are only looking at one slice. Just, that's just a head-to-head comparison. That's not counting the whole system. When you count the whole system, I mean, it's completely unsustainable. You have to be getting nitrogen from artificial fertilizer. That's the only way for the whole system. The, the advantage for conventional farming over organic farming is only going to get bigger. And, like, organic farming almost has to demonize GMO food because if they don't, eventually it's going to be just way too obvious the you know, that the disadvantage for organic farming in terms of productivity and land use. You know what I mean? And then the price point, I think will, that will be reflected in it. So I, I wonder, like in 10, 20, 50 years, if we keep up with biotech and improving the efficiency of our, of our farming, maybe their days are numbered. I don't know. You can never underestimate the power of ideology. I mean, already people are willing to pay a, pr- a huge premium for nothing, for just for a fake marketing scheme, you know? Yeah, but Steve, I mean, think, as you well know, you know, what are they predicting? By 2050, there's the only way we're going to possibly feed the world by, by 2050, which isn't that far away, is, is by using GMOs. I mean, yeah. it's not going to happen. That's going to, I think that's going to force the hand. Yeah, I mean, they make it to extent. the point where it's like, you know what? We can't afford to allow you to use this land for organic farming. We need to be, we need to maximize the productivity of all the farmland that we have. Oh, boy. I just don't think that's going to happen. I think there's always going to be the 1% boutique bullshit farming. I mean, is how yeah. big of a difference is it really going to make that 1%? Yeah, 1% isn't that much. Yeah. You I mean, it's right. a bummer. It's a bummer. It's what I see. I mean, I live in the in the belly of the beast when it comes to this stuff. And <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah. my best friends <laughs> are totally duped by it all the time. You know, oh I have my friends. Gosh. Yeah, I have friends uh, that are nutritionists. I have friends that it, it, you almost can't escape it here. There are days when it's just not worth it. There are days when you just find yourself biting your tongue at the things yep. people say. Yep. You know, because yep. it's almost like if I just want to eat in a restaurant in L.A., oh I just gosh. have to deal with 
with the crap that's on the menu and the crap that the waiter is saying and then the crap that the people sitting in the booth with me are saying about the crap that the waiter just said. <laughs> if you had it's, to correct everybody you came across, it would be a more than a full-time job. Oh, I'd love occup- it. I'd love occupy it. I would give every waiter bo- like, shit every time they tried to saw me <laughs> that's that. Hilarious. You would die of starvation. You'd you never would. get to get your order and you'd have Nobody to Nobody de- would you know, let you eat. Debunk everything. <laughs> right, but at that point, you would be you would be the asshole because if the entire <laughs> restaurant disagrees with you you know like you can't, you can't do that. the guy who's holding up the line plus i'd probably spit in your food all right bob i understand that trump is going to invest a lot of money in science did i get that right uh i'm not sure what universe you're in but uh let's <laughs> talk about what, what's that's really going that on? a mandela effect i'm from another universe <laughs> 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 i have been i'm sure all of us have been curious and uneasy for quite some time thinking about what the Trump presidency would mean for science research in the United States. Um, and there certainly was legitimate concern based on the things that he's literally said over many years, if not decades, but also specifically, of course, during the campaign itself. For example, things he said about climate change and vaccines, very concerning. So the full 2018 budget request went to Congress recently, and experts have had a chance to take to take a look at it. It's called a new foundation for American greatness. But uh, unfortunately, it looks like it's a foundation for something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, bottom line, as you might expect, this is not very good for science at all. The National Cancer Institute will lose $1 billion compared to the 2017 budget that's in effect right now. That's not a good place to start. But let's look at some of the bigger chunks. Like, for example, the NIH, the National Institute of Health. Uh, I went to their webpage and just to like, all right, what do these guys really do? What's the nitty gritty? So in their mission statement, they say – What do they do? Yeah, going by what do they say that they do? Uh, their mission statement says specifically uh, to seek fundamental knowledge about the nature and behavior of living systems and the application of that knowledge to enhance health lengthen life, and reduce illness and disability. That sounds good. Well, they take 80% of their funding and it goes towards 50,000 competitive grants to more than 300,000 researchers around the United States and the world, including 2,500 universities, medical schools, and other research institutions. So that's some pretty important shit that they're doing. So uh, the 2018 budget request uh, wants to knock $7.7 billion off of their budget. From thirty-five billion, which to twenty-seven billion, that's a twenty-two percent cut from the National Institute of Health. Oh my God, that's going to be devast- devastating. That is, it is. That would be Former CDC yeah. director Tom Frieden said regarding this proposal that it devastates programs that protect Americans from cancer, diabetes, heart attacks, strokes, and other deadly and expensive conditions. So that's that's just like what the hell. And sp- specifically, what Trump wants to do, and this is like so typical of his mentality. So it's typical for an academic institution uh, to take 30% of a, a research grant for right, indirect right. costs, yeah. right? So that's like basically mm-hmm. keeping the lights on. And we all know that they could, they're going to take six, they're going to take their 30%. You sort of build that into your budget, you know, if you're submitting a grant request, but Trump thinks that that's too high. <laughs> That's, you know, too that's waste. High. He sees that as waste. Well, what are we spending that 30% for? That 30% should be spent directly on research, not on the institution. It's like, yeah, but you, you realize that academic institutions depend upon the indirect costs to survive. Yeah. This, you know what I mean? So what do you, what do you think is happening with this money? You know, so, you know, this is like he wants to be a deal maker. Oh, I want to get them to cut them down from 30% to 10%. 
It's like you're going to demolish, decimate our academic infrastructure mm-hmm. if you do that. Well, what's really going to happen is just way less grants are going to get funded and less well, less projects yeah, are going right. to – yeah, Less research. Less research. Gonna be, there's going to be less no, science. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah, so let me jump into the second big topic. I've got NASA. Um, NASA actually did fairly decent, relatively speaking. So, like, for example, uh, astrophysics is going to see a boost of 9%. Well, that's kind of awesome. Uh, planetary science uh, did very well as well. They, they're up to – I couldn't get an exact percentage, but they they did great in 2017. And this budget for 2018 is going to get them up to one9 uh, 1.930 billion. Um, that's nice. That was, that was planetary science. The big NASA hit isn't too hard to guess. Uh, the new budget wants to end a research program that's meant to establish carbon monitoring in the United States and other countries. And that's kind of important. I mean, that's the kind of monitoring that you're going to need for the Paris Climate uh, Agreement. And uh, as of this taping, Trump has said that he will decide soon about this agreement. But everyone is pretty much expecting that, that he will actually pull the United States out of it and that they are not going to go, go with it. Yeah. So this carbon monitoring, you know, is bad for the, for the short term because you're not monitoring, but it's also, you know, it's also not good for the long term as well, uh, more than you may think. Uh, because let's say David Victor is an expert on international climate policy. He says these programs also lay the foundation for future verification systems. Serious treaties to make deep cuts in emissions will require verification. The country needs to start building this capability if we are to be ready to manage the global climate problem. So we're going to need this information looking back to see what kind of impact we're having. We're, so we're not going to have this information if this goes through. So uh, there's lots more here for NASA. But uh, overall, they did fairly well. They're only seeing a 2.8% drop from 2017 levels. So it could have been a lot worse for them. But for the DOE, uh, it did not go nearly as well. Uh, this is the United States Department of Energy. Uh, the DOE takes a huge hit from Trump's proposed budget, and this one hits home to me, um, especially well, even more, uh, even more than, than the NIH, the NIH did. Specifically, uh, it's the DOE's Office of Science. The Office of Science. This is the single largest funder of the physical science, sciences in the United States. So think about that. The Office of Science could take a huge hit. To me, that's like being a wizard and reading that the Ministry of Magic is being demagicked. You know, how can that possibly be good in any universe that exists in the multiverse? Um, it's horrible. So spending for the office um, could fall 17% down to $4.473 billion, the lowest level since 2008, which isn't even adjusted for inflation. So the Office of Science basically funds six big research programs. Under this proposed budget, all but one are going to take a nasty hit. So let's go. I'm going to go through these. So we got the Basic Energy Sciences, BES. This is research in basic things like chemistry, material science, and condensed matter physics, etc., um, uh, and the icing on the excrement cake is that the budget calls for the closing of not one, but two of the five nanoscience centers. Nanoscience. Two centers could be closed because of this. Hang on a second. I, I need to cry a little bit. Okay, I'm done. Um, so <laughs> Does nano cry. Yeah, yeah, na- yeah. Right. <laughs> I mean, I mean, nanoscience. Yeah, that's not too important for the goddamn future. All right, number three, <laughs> nu- nuclear physics. Nuclear physics uh, budget nuclear. fall by 19%, 19% <laughs> decrease. High energy physics programs will receive a cut, 18.4% down to 673 million. 
And then, then there's fusion energy sciences. That's going to be, that could be cut by 18.4%. Huh. Down to 310 million. So, but don't no. worry. It's just, it's just fusion. You know, it's just only one of the major sources of renewable energy in the near future. You know, so solar and, and wind power and other renewables will certainly have an important place in the future energy landscape. Fusion by itself could power the world night and day with the wind, without wind, doesn't even matter. And it could permanently end our dependence on on oil with minimal downsides, even even the radioactive downsides are nothing compared to fission. I mean, this, to but, me, fusion is clearly the future of energy but, production for for the world in conjunction but, with some others. Yeah. Yes. What about the coal miners? Oh yeah, but they they need their jobs. What about yeah? What about the the fusion reactor Homer Simpsons of the world? We're gonna need those guys too. <laughs> Bob's gonna be Good competent. Call. What about my thorium um, reactor that I'm holding out hope right. for? Is there any chance? Uh, so there is a bright side, though. A little bit of a bright side. This budget probably will not be will not survive in this repugnant state in the Congress. Uh, they are a, quite a bit more realistic when it comes to their budgets, and they have final control over what's in the budget so they don't have to listen at all and uh, a lot of people are saying that they're really they're really going to decimate this because this is just so unrealistic and so devastating to so much science that is really important so that's so in that regard this is looking good um i don't think it's going to survive in this shape at all and hopefully the numbers will improve dramatically uh once they are done with it but still there's this underlying problem uh, that that's been that's exemplified in this nice quote by a DOE national laboratory guy who's, uh, who wanted, who said he didn't want to be identified for obvious reasons. He said, basically, this, it says science is not important. It says we don't care if we have a leadership role in science and technology. We've got other priorities. And that's exactly what this, this budget proposal says in my mind. It says that, that's, you know, uh, much of science, especially basic science is not as, imp- is not important anymore. And we've got to focus on other things. Uh, but there's, you know, this, when, you know, when we can't do such important basic science research, uh, things would have to be pretty bad, much worse than I think, uh, than I think they are now. And these are the kinds of things that we can't, we can't turn away from. Uh, the benefits, especially for basic science, because there's no direct link, right, to to the basic science and a technology or a product or something that's going to benefit humanity. But how many times have we discovered amazingly important things by just from doing basic science? And that and that's something that this budget just kind of like like spits in its face and says, "Oh, we don't need basic science. It's not that important." Yeah, I mean, I doubt. Yeah, anything close to this will go actually go through, but. It just is, it's mainly like what it says about where Trump's head is at, that he doesn't think that science is that, that important. Very so short sighted. All right. Well, thanks, Bob. Jay, it's who's that noisy time. Okay. Last week I played this noisy. We had a listener. I'm going to start with the worst guest this week. Uh, this was sent in by Jody Duran, and Jody said, "Longtime listener, first time guesser. Sounds like a woodworker turning a bowl on a lathe." And then I realized when I read this, man, I have no idea what that sounds like. And if it sounds like that noisy, <laughs> my imagination is is wrong. Maybe Jody knows what a lathe sounds like. Yeah, I, you know, Jody, send me in a recording if you, the guy said he has one. It depends. I mean, I've heard him. I, I used to watch the uh, the Woodwright shop mm-hmm. all the time, 
and he would use a lathe. Yeah, it was a actually, great show. no. I, I, I uh, you know what, Steve? I think I saw that show too, and now a little memory sparked in my head. Did you just plant that memory in there? Yeah. But there, but yeah. I, think I, I think I know what the relation is because when the wood is being chipped away, when it, it could kind of sound like that, maybe. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. So the winner for this week, and he gave me the pronunciation of his name. So thank you. Uh, my name is pronounced. Uh, Pytor, one syllable with a rolling voiceless R at the end. Pytor, P-Y-O-T-R. Kara. Pytor. Pytor's not Pyotor? Pyotor. A P-Y-O-T-R with a rolling R. Is that what he said? With a rolling R at the end? With a rolling voiceless R at the end. A rolling voice. So it's Pyotor. Pyotor. Sounds Eastern European kind of. I was going to call him Python. Of course you are. You're going to call him Parasaurolophus. Say it, Jay. Say it. Say it. Sorry. Mini drum roll, please. <laughs> the sound you played was the world's largest beetle, the Hercules beetle. <gasps> Correct. Oh no it's way! I have one of those, but it's Whoa. dead. Oh no! So, what happened? <laughs> those are yes. What you are hearing is somebody holding the beetle by its its big horn, oh. and the it's flapping its wings, and it's a it's a big substantial creature. This Whoa. is a you know these these wings are big. Um. So very interesting. Another thing I found interesting about this particular creature is its insane life cycle. Guys, have you ever seen the life cycle of the Hercules beetle? The light, you mean that what it rides on to get to burn calories? <laughs> <laughs> this thing it starts peloton. out incredibly small and changes into I think what four different versions of itself really that are totally different for yes just look it up watch the youtube video because i could just spend 15 minutes like when a caterpillar becomes a butterfly it goes through that four times yeah but four different very different creatures yeah very different looking creatures okay weird and and incredibly interesting please take a look that's one of the reasons why i picked it and thank you jordan for sending in this week's noisy i really enjoyed it I have a very wonderful noisy this week. I'm giving no hints, but I but when you do send in your guess, be specific, but use your imagination. So tell me what it is and what's being done to it. Uh, it sounds like that's oh okay. That's more clear. What's okay? being done to it? Oh, that's interesting. Yes, and that noisy was sent in by a listener named Jacob Hodgegard Lutzen. That was there's three names. There. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> all three of cool. them. Nobody, nobody sent me their middle name before. <laughs> Thank you, Jacob. And guys, I got a lot of cool noises that I have queued up, but I still need more because there's dry spells and they're hard to find. <laughs> so email me at WTN at the skeptics with your new noises and your guesses. Do it now. Thank you, Jay. So one quick email, we actually had a few people emails. And after the science or fiction last week, uh, when I said that the goats were domesticated only about 3000 years ago, uh, Evan thought that there were goats, in the Bible, which dates to before that, and then a number of people uh, wrote in to point out that, well, actually, 
the oldest book of the Bible doesn't even go back that far. Mm. So how, when do you think the oldest, what, first of all, what do you think the oldest book of the Bible is? Four, four, well, Genesis 4.5 billion years ago. In the ago. beginning, that's when. It, <laughs> <laughs> so day one. <laughs> Scholars think that the oldest, the first book of the Bible written was Job, okay. the book huh. of Job. Just because of the, the references, you know, the, the cultural references at the time. Uh, and it, that was written probably somewhere between 745 and 600 mm, BC. So not oh, wow. quite 3,000 so years. Not that, not even quite 3,000 years ago. Yeah. That's interesting. That. I mean, I think then the question is they're writing about what time period though. So like Job himself, I mean, obviously that, yeah, whether he existed or not, that, that history, that oral history, that story dates from when before it got written down. Like, for example, one thing that's interesting is that, uh, you know, camels, using camels to, to, as transportation was, was a fairly late development. And so any reference to like riding a camel somewhere in the Bible, we know that has to come from like after 700 BC, you know, cause that, um, be, before that part of the rewrite. Exist. Yeah. So it could be, but we know that the authors writing at the time, they thought, even though they may be imposing that on an older story, but they, to them, yeah, that's how you got from A to B. You rode a camel. You know, they didn't know that 500 years earlier, they didn't ride camels. If, if goats were around 500 BC, so within that 3000 years, they would have, you know, imposed that upon even older stories. So the the idea that there are goats all over the Bible actually wouldn't put you wouldn't put goats before three thousand years ago. Well, sure, mm-hmm. does that make sense? Yeah. Right. So you right were right for, for the, the wrong, wrong reason. reason. <laughs> Just you know, to reason. me, the Bible is freaking Charlton Heston on the mountain. So you know, I am not a scholar by any stretch <laughs> of, the, of the old well, documents. I would like to thank Evan for last week's guest. You're welcome. Oh yeah, me too. Yeah. Yeah, but led the way. <laughs> okay, well, we have a really good interview coming up, so let's go to that interview now. Well, we are joined now by Ed Stone. Ed, welcome to the Skeptics Guide. Glad to be here. And Dr. Stone is a professor of physics at the California Institute of Technology a former director of the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and currently you are on the board of directors of the 30-meter telescope. Is that correct? I'm the executive director, actually. Executive director. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, so so why don't we just start and write in and talk about the 30-meter telescope. It sounds pretty cool. What is it? A 30-meter telescope, that's the diameter of the primary mirror, uh, and uh, currently the world's largest telescopes are the Keck telescopes, which have 10-meter mirrors. And so this is a, this is a, a next-generation telescope designed to look back to the very beginning of uh, the universe. It, the, yeah, the next largest ground-based telescope is 10 meters? Is that what you're saying? Yes, that's correct. There are two of them. They're the Keck telescopes on Mauna Kea. There's also a similar, very similar uh, version of the Keck telescope in the Carrot Canary Islands, which is 10.4 meters. They're wow. segmented right. mirror telescopes. Right. So, so Ed, clearly uh, the TMT will be uh, far superior to Keck. How would you compare it to, say, the Hubble, for for example? Well, it has much more light collecting power than Hubble has. Hubble's a 2.6-meter uh, mirror, as I remember. Uh, so there's a great deal more collecting photons to to make spectra because if you want to learn, observe, and understand what the object is, you need to make a spectrum. We need to sp- uh, spread the light out into a band of colors, and those will be very diagnostic of what that uh, object is. 
that means you need to collect a lot of photons, though, in order to be able to spread them out according to wavelength. And that's where the power of uh, area is very important. Okay. So, so regardless of the atmosphere, you're still just getting a lot more photons to the, to the mirror itself. That's correct. And the atmosphere itself, we, uh, we have shown with Keck that you can correct for much of the atmospheric blurring uh, and, uh, uh, and, and achieve essentially what's uh, the full capability of a telescope. So with a 30-meter telescope on the Mauna Kea, uh, if you use the, uh, what's called the adaptive optics to correct for the atmospheric blur- blurring, uh, it will collect nine times more light than uh, the 10-meter text, but it will focus that light on a spot on your on your camera of one-ninth the area. So the, sure. the individual points will be 81 times brighter uh, with a 30-meter telescope than with the best in the world today. So are you using um, like a guide laser to, uh, to, to, to get a read on the, the turbulence of the atmosphere? Is that the method you're using? And then you're, and then you're, uh, you're actually moving the mirrors to adapt to the turbulence detected by that, that guide laser in, in, in the atmosphere? Yes, that's, that's, we do have uh, six to eight lasers creating artificial wow. guide stars. Uh, you need bright stars because, again, you need to measure the, uh, dis- the distortion of, a, of the star a, a thousand times a second. So you need a lot of photons from your bright star. Uh, and we don't actually adjust the 292 segments. We focus the primary mirror down on, a, on an object, which is a mirror which is perhaps about 20-some centimeters across. Uh, and where there are actuators on the back which deform that mirror uh, hundreds of times a second to, to compensate for what the atmosphere has done to the light beam coming from the stars. All right, so you're, you're adapting only one uh, mirror segment, not all of them? No, they're, they're all, the whole primary mirror is focused onto this one mirror. So okay. They have a, it's, it's okay. Entire, all 49 are... Gotcha, gotcha. Wow, that is powerful. Wow. So, so you detwinkle the stars. Detwinkle the stars. That's right. <laughs> yes. Cool. And, and how would this compare to the Webb telescope, which is the next one that's going to replace Hubble? Yeah, the Webb telescope is uh, six and a half meters, which is a, will be the largest in space. Uh, it still will not have better angular resolution, though, because the angular resolution uh, really is just proportional to the diameter. So that the images coming back from the 30-meter telescope will have a, a, a much, much more improved angular resolution. So let me just ask you one question, if you had to bottom line it. If as, a, as an astronomer, if you could only have either the 30-meter telescope or the, the Webb telescope in space, which one would you have? That's a very good question because the web will do things that the, the TMT can't do and the TMT will do things that the web can't do. And so the reason we have more than one kind of telescope in the world is because no one telescope can do everything. Uh, and uh, so if you had to choose, I don't know. It depends on how much money you want to spend. The yeah. web telescope will be much more expensive than the 30-meter telescope. So that's uh, true. One, one basis of choice would be to go with a lower-cost version. So is it, is it fair to say that the Webb telescope, because it's completely above the atmosphere, might take clearer images, but the 30-meter will take deeper images because it collects more light? Is that a fair summary? I think uh, the uh, it's it's the Hubble. I mean, the James Webb will certainly benefit from the fact that it can do infrared over of all the entire wavelength range. 
uh, on the top of the mountain on Earth, you still have uh, water vapor and things like that, which interfere with uh, with some aspects of the infrared spectrum. And so the, the the James Webb will do work that it's just not possible for a 30 meter telescope to do, and it will be a major. They'll be complementary. These two telescopes will work yeah. very well together. So when you say that when you say that they're going to work together, are you going to be able to combine information from them looking at the same celestial body? Yeah, I think that each will provide spectral information that uh, that will com- which will be complementary. And so, okay. yes, in fact, these days uh, uh, one often observes also at other wavelengths, uh, submillimeter and so on, uh, because of the the, uh, the nature of the objects that are being discovered. Let me ask you another question because I'm very interested about this. So I know that the Keck telescopes, they can do interferometry, right, because there's two telescopes? Yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. And so that's where you're combining the signal from two scopes and be, you know the, the way that they interfere with each other gives you other detailed information. But how does that information compare to like one bigger telescope? The uh, the two kicks uh, were used as as interferometer. Their 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 baseline, if you like, between the two mirrors uh, is 85 meters. So in in a certain sense, they will have the angular resolution of a 85 meter mirror. Uh, but they won't collect the amount of light because they're only two 10-meter mirrors rather than one big 85-meter mirror. So, yeah. again, it comes back to uh, if what you want to do is locate uh, an object uh, or two objects which are close together, uh, you'll get better angular resolution with an interferometer, but you won't be able to collect nearly enough light to do uh, the kinds of spectroscopy you need to do to study the nature of the object. Gotcha. So that's, that's yet another complementary instrument. Yes, that's right. Awesome. Okay. So last time we actually talked about the the TMT, the thirty meter thirty meter telescope on the show, when there was a bit of a controversy about uh, the 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 local Hawaiians objecting to building yet another telescope on Mauna Kea, uh, but now it sounds like things are moving forward. So could you get us up to date on that on the sort of the legal aspects of building the scope? Uh, yes, we've been uh, uh, looking at Hawaii and, and started. Uh, preparing for Hawaii back uh, nine years ago now. And we did, in fact, uh, get a permit uh, for the use of a conservation district, as a conservation district use permit, not a building permit, but just a permit to use a conservation district, which is the top of the mountain. Then, in the, But unfortunately, before we managed to uh, get access to the mountain because of the demonstrations, this Hawaiian Supreme Court stepped in and said that the process that the Department of Land and Natural Resources had followed was was flawed and that uh, we needed to repeat what was called the contested case hearings. That is where the record is opened up to any and all who uh, want to be on record with respect to why this was a good idea or where this was not such a good idea to build TMT on Mauna Kea. We've just finished 44 days of hearings. They were finished actually uh, in March. 44 days of hearings. Uh, most of those days were uh, in the uh, opponents. 71 witnesses. Uh, and today is a very special day because today is when all the, in- in the parties to this uh, activity have to uh, submit their uh, their summary of what they think the findings of fact are and what the conclusions of law are with respect to uh, TMT on on Mauna Kea. And uh, so we're in that process of the contested case hearing. Hopefully this fall uh, we will receive a permit again and that we can begin construction in April of 2018. And then when will the telescope be operational? 
It, it'll be about eight years or so. Wow, eight years. Oh, boy, we've got a ways to go. It's a very large structure when you think about it, of course, and it all has sure. to be put together on the top of a mountain where it's not easy to work because of yeah. the uh, amount of oxygen and a few other... Uh, what, what's the elevation? In, uh, in Mauna Kea, we're at about a uh, little bit under, uh, just a little bit over 13,000 feet. Yeah, that's wow. up there. Now, now who's going to be building the TMT? Is it going to be a group of what, private contractors or governments involved? Who's involved with this? There are currently six partners. Caltech and the University of California are the two U.S. partners. And then we have four national partners, Canada, Japan, China, and India. And so each of those partners has a, a particular part of the observatory that they are responsible for. For instance, Canada is responsible for two important pieces. One is the dome itself, or the enclosure as it's called, and the adaptive optic system that we talked about earlier that's used to de-blur the stars. Then uh, uh, Japan has the responsibility for designing and developing the uh, framework of the telescope, which holds all these mirrors, and for actually uh, providing the many blanks of special glass that are used to make the total number of mirrors that we need. Uh, they will also polish some, as will China, uh, Japan, uh, uh, China, India uh, will also polish, and, and some polishing will be done here in the U.S. So it, it's that kind of a, an arrangement where each of our partners has uh, a role in providing uh, some in-kind, uh, in-kind contribution as well as, of course, uh, helping support the the central uh, design activity at the project, and then who is going to be paying like the annual operational budget of the telescope? The partners, the six partners that are current partners, and any new partners that we bring bring on board in the next few years will fund the operations in in relate in relative to this how much they their fraction of the observing time is that they uh, they will earn because of their contribution. So it's like a timeshare mm-hmm. telescope. It's a timeshare concept. Yes. Neat. Yeah. yeah, that works. So, Ed, how confident are you that this is going to end well? I mean, I just saw an article today in the West uh, West Hawaii Today online paper, and the name of the article was TMT is slipping away and we should all be sorry. Um, they were saying things like that uh, the TMT management uh, uh, kind of look has been looking for an, an alternative site in the Canary Islands off the coast of Africa, and, uh, and it goes into some details ab- about that. Um, and how, and how cooperative the Spanish government, uh, is, how interested they are, and how, and, and how, uh, for example, the Canary Islands could offer all the licensing and everything that you need in like one year, whereas for Hawaii, you've been doing this for nine years and you're still not there yet. So, I mean, how, so what's, what's your confidence levels at? Uh, do you really think this thing could be, uh, building in, uh, in a year in 2018? Well, that's our plan, and it, indeed, uh, two years ago now, uh, we started this, uh, the search for a backup site uh, because it was clear with uh, what had happened that uh, there, that we uh, we had not we had to have some backup plan just in case Mauna Kea would not uh, uh, not be proved feasible. Mauna Kea remains our number one choice, but we uh, now have an agreement with uh, Spain to locate uh, on La Palma. Uh, and uh, and we're in the process of uh, going through all the necessary uh, environmental studies and so on that are required for that. Things are moving along rather well, so we feel that that uh, we should be able to have a site to build on by April of 2018. All right, so Ed, what is your short list 
for the science that, that you would like to see done with the TMT? What are we going to be able to do that we can't do right now? Well, a couple of examples. One is that if you if you want to see the first stars in the universe, the first galaxies in the universe, you need to be able to see back to a period of about four, 400 million years after the Big Bang. The Big Bang was 13.8 billion years ago. But for the first 400 million years, there were no stars. Uh, it took a while for the for the material which came out of the Big Bang to form enough mass in one place to form a star. And we, it's estimated that uh, that was on the order of 400 million years. So in order to see the very first stars in the universe, the very first galaxies, and how they evolved into what we are, which we can see today, uh, is one of the long, big uh, uh, objectives. Another example is that's very far away. Another example is to look at things nearby, stars nearby which have planets orbiting them because the planets are very dim compared to the central star they're in orbit around and you need a large high-resolution, high spatial-resolution instrument such as 30-meter to be able to study these planets which are, we now know are orbiting most stars. Uh, and we need to find some which, we're, which are like Earth uh, because one of the principal objectives, another principal objective is to uh, uh, find Earth-like planets elsewhere and look at their atmospheres with spectroscopy, that is with those spreading out in color so we can tell what's in the atmosphere to see if there's evidence that there's mi microbial life there. You know, the oxygen in our atmosphere came, comes from microbes. Uh, and for billions of years, several billions of years, there was no oxygen. But as, as life flourished, it produced the oxygen, which then made it possible for higher orders of species to evolve, such as uh, Homo sapiens. So that's another key uh, objective that will be greatly aided by the, by the collecting power of the 30-meter mirror. Uh, another kind of study is that looking for uh, massive black holes at the center of galaxies and, and, uh, and understanding th them in great detail. We know there is a 4 million solar mass black hole at the center of the Milky Way galaxy, and with a 30-meter telescope, we'll be able to study stars orbiting that black hole. We can't see the black hole itself, but we can see its effect because it's there, its mass is there, and it's perturbing, uh, it's controlling the orbit of the stars orbiting nearby. So we're going to, do you think we're going to be definitely be able to see like the first stars? We should be able to see the very first, now maybe not the first star, but the first stars uh, in the first galaxies. Uh, that's what we think we'll be able to do. So that's basically 13.4 billion years ago? Uh, it's about, see, 13.8, yeah, 13.4, correct. So that's it. There's, then there's no farther back to look than that. That's right. It's called the Dark Ages. You look further yeah. out, and you can get, you can, we can see further than that in the radio, millimeter radio wave. It's called the cosmic background radiation. Mm -hmm. That's the, that's only about 400,000 years old. Uh, mm -hmm. that's, uh, we can see that with our radio telescopes now. And, of course, there have been several Nobel Prizes associated with that kind of research. Uh, so, uh, but from an, in the optical, with stars, when they're stars, you have to, it takes several hundred million years for them, all the stuff that created in the Big Bang to coalesce to create stars and create galaxies. And how that happened and exactly what the pattern was and the physical processes are what we would be learning. All right. Well, Ed, thanks so much for get, uh, spending some time with us. This has been fascinating. Thanks, Ed. Okay. Thank you, Thank Ed. you. Thank you. Right. All right. Good night. Bye. It's time for Science or Fiction. 
Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake, and I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. We have three regular news items this week. Actually, we have three exceptionally interesting news items this week. <laughs> Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. Okay, here we go. No theme, Bob. It's not about goats or <laughs> Bob, whatever. That's totally mind. silent. Yeah. <laughs> Total silence. <laughs> Total silence. All right, here we go. Out of number one, scientists have sequenced the genome of mice that have been treated with CRISPR-Cas9 and found over 1,500 unintended mutations. Out of number two, astronomers have discovered that some large stars may collapse directly into black holes without ever going supernova and estimate this happens 10 to 30% of the time. And item number three, in a new study, scientists found that washing your hands with water at 100 degrees Fahrenheit, that's 37 degrees Celsius, killed more than three times as many bacteria as washing in 60 degree Fahrenheit or 15 degrees Celsius water. Kara, go first. Okay. All right. Here we go. Scientists are sequencing the genome, or they have sequenced the genome of mice. Okay, believe that. That have been treated with CRISPR, believe that. Um, and found over 1,500 unintended mutations. That's the news peg there. Yep. Does using CRISPR-Cas9 cause mutations? Um, seems kind of like a believable side effect. I mean, you are going in and intentionally changing the genome there. Okay, astronomers discovered some large stars may collapse directly into a black hole without ever going supernova and estimate this happens 10 to 30. That seems like a big number. I don't know. I know nothing about what is happening at the, like, the physics of what's happening at a black hole. I know that we historically think of them as blowing up and then imploding, but... I don't know. When it comes to this stuff, I feel like anything could be possible. In a new study, scientists found that washing your hands with water at 100 degrees killed more than three times as many bacteria as washing in 60 degrees. Well, 60 degrees is cold. 100 degrees is close to body temperature. Something about this one feels fishy to me. And the reason I think this feels fishy is that I think even at 100 degrees, you probably don't kill that many bacteria because a lot of bacteria probably thrive at that at that um, temperature. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just I'm going to go with my gut on this. I don't have enough like background knowledge about any of these topics to really, I think, have a, an informed answer. So I'm going to say there's something about killing three times as many more because the water is 100. I would think the water has to be hotter than that before you can start really killing bacteria. Okay, Jay. You know, Kara, I would think that the temperature change would have a significant difference in, in what bacteria it kills. Just not all the bacteria. I mean, 100 degrees doesn't seem really that hot, but it is, you know, it's hot enough, I think, to have an effect. I mean, I do remember reading that in order to, to really get rid of the bacteria on your hands, you'd have to wash your hands in water that is so hot that it would, like, ruin your skin. Like, you would be giving yourself second-degree burns type of deal. But I'm just going to say, how hot do you think a hot tub is? 104. I know. 104, oh, baby. I was going to I was going to guess 110. So I I, I guess you were saying. Yeah. So it's hot. It's hot. 100 degrees is is definitely hot enough to kill certain bacteria on you without a doubt. Um the the thing here is that it's saying that it's found that washing your hands with water at 100 degrees kills more than 3 times as many bacteria as washing at 60. Yeah, I mean, okay, that's believable. Okay. I'm not blown away either way. I'm not I'm not I don't think it's a big claim. Um let's go on to the number 2. Uh, this large star collapsed directly into a black hole. Um, to me, the thing here is it happens 10 to 30% of the time. Who the hell knows how often that happens? I've never heard of it happening. 
And then scientists have sequenced the genome. They've been treated with CRISPR and found over 1,500 unintended mutations. If that's true, that's bad. That'd be bad. That's the first thing I heard about CRISPR that I really don't like if that's true. Um, 1,500 mutations. Is that a lot? I don't know. There's the, oh, Kara, I stumbled on the thing I don't get. Is that a lot? Maybe that's not a lot. Maybe that isn't bad. (laughs) I don't know. So I will say that 10 to 30% is too many. Okay, Evan. The CRISPR one, I agree. I think that's science. And yeah, 1,500 unintended mutations. It does sound like a lot, but I think that's uh, maybe a lot still, but it's not an unreasonable find. Therefore, I've never heard of a star going direct to black hole. And there's a reason why Bob went last on this one. Hmm. Uh, but in any case, uh, without ever going supernova. When, it's like a movie when? going direct to videotape. That's serious. It just, it, well, that's lame. Any, any movie you want to see, I mean, you just, you just wouldn't do it. And it happens 10 to 30% of the time. Oh my gosh. Well, that part actually wouldn't be surprising if that were the case. But, and then the washing your hands with water at 100 degrees. Okay. So the key here is what, how many bacteria are killed at 60? That's really the key. One. If it's right. So, so <laughs> right. So at 100, can you get three? I think you could. So this one, in a certain sense, sounds plausible. But, geez, I had never heard of this one with the star going uh, collapsing directly into a black hole without ever going supernova. Yeah, all right, Jay, I'm with you. I'll say the uh, the stars in the supernova one. I'll say that one's the fiction. All right. Okay, and Bob. So we'll start with one here, the uh, CRISPR-Cas9. Jay is, is correct here. 1,500 unintended comp- mutations. That's horrible! What the hell? This is the worst thing I've ever heard about CRISPR. CRISPR is CRISPR Bob, was awesome. Not this, not I mean, all mutations are bad, right? Uh, yeah, true. but it's yeah, but it, uh, so what? They they the key with CRISPR is that you have a targeted change in the DNA. I need to do this specific thing, and this vector is going to do it. That's what's so awesome about it. But now, if you got hey, oh yeah, we'll do this one thing you want, but we're going to throw in another you know fourteen hundred ninety nine or fifteen hundred unintended mutations that's terrible so that's that's really that's like really upsetting uh because i mean are they <coughs> random are they random mutations i mean the, the implication here is that you've got all these unintended ones and this just random shit and they could be terrible um so that's i don't like that so the second one is probably even worse i mean i i'm trying to think of the mechanism jay i don't know why you were focusing on 10 to 30 percent to me that's irrelevant to me, kind of like what Evan was getting at is what's the mechanism here? How could this possibly work? I mean, for a conventional supernova, you've got fusion processes stopping at the core. So the outward pressure stops and gravity wins. Gravity is the big winner. So it all collapses. And then, and then some of it rebounds and that's causing the, um, the supernova that you see visibly and in other wavelengths. And, uh, but a good chunk of that also collapses into the black hole. So I mean, how, how do you, with, how does this happen without this rebound, without fusion stopping and causing this inevitable rebound um, and that also ends up with a black hole? I mean, how do you remove some of that scenario and and still create a black hole without the without the visible supernova? I'm not sure how that's going to how that would happen. I'm kind of leaning towards the water now because the water one, you know, is kind of like not as outrageous as these other two. So in my mind, little meta analysis here, um, 
the, the one and two are are crazy, but one and but the third one with the bacteria it isn't as outrageous as the first two. So that's so three is standing out. So uh, you know, I'm I think I'm just gonna normally I would jump on the supernova because it's like no effing way, but screw that. Uh, I'm gonna go with the water fiction. Wow! Hey, Kara. And I went first, so I would not trust a thing. I know. I I, I, and typically I don't when it comes to uh, astronomy. Yeah. But uh, I've been- All right. So you all agree on the first one, so we'll start there. Scientists have sequenced the genome of mice that have been treated with CRISPR-Cas9 and found over 1,500 unintended mutations. That's per mouse, by the way. Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> In case there was any confusion about that. You guys no. all think that one is science. Oh and that one is science. Oh, explain no. it. What are you talking Bummer. about here? Well, it's Which pretty make much me feel better. what make it me says. Feel better. Nope, sorry. No making you feel better here. Uh, so CRISPR is wow, a technique Jesus. for making cheap, easy, fast, targeted, targeted mutation changes to yeah, the genome. Targeted. Uh, and now, but however, the, the thing is they know that they change more than the target sequence. But because the CRISPR may also affect similar sequences so what oh, they've what they've uh, been doing is monitoring the the genome for those other locations where they're likely the crispr is likely to also cause mutations but this is the first time that researchers have sequenced the entire genome of mm-hmm. an animal that had undergone crispr and so they found they counted them 1,500, greater than 1,500 single mutations and over 100 larger deletions or insertions. Those are even bigger mutations uh, throughout the whole gene. Now, a lot of that will be in non-coding DNA, of course, because it's just randomly spread throughout the DNA. A lot of them will be silent, but but some of them won't be because they're random. Uh. This is concerning. It is absolutely uh, the you know a really concerning thing about CRISPR. Maybe it isn't... Uh, as precise as we thought it was. Um, but this is the first study to show this. This needs to be replicated. We need to show that this is actually what's happening and learn more about it. And maybe we need to modify the technique to minimize these unintended mutations. But it means that we have to to look for them more than we were because we were only looking for them where we thought that they would have a high probability of occurring. And now we know they're occurring even elsewhere in the genome. Yeah, so the the the, uh, the takeaway though was that don't forget that what is it, Steve? Three percent of your genome is coding. I mean, I forget the number, but it's very tiny. It's low. It's very low. So at the, least eighty percent of the genome is junk. We, that that we could say. right. So remember, so the vast majority of those unintended mutations are in junk and kind of is uh, doesn't matter. But it's not oof. good. It, it, and you know, when you get to <laughs> when you get to cre- you know species with large genomes, it could be a problem. Not so much with bacteria because you could, you know, it's very easy to look at the whole genome and make sure there's no changes you don't want. Uh, like that Simpsons episode where they're testing product on Bart. Some monsterism. Some monsterism. <laughs> <yeah. laughs> so they'll have to, maybe, maybe they'll need to revise the technique to minimize it. We'll oh, see. God. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually depressed. Yeah, it's too bad. All right. Well, I guess we'll just take them in order since you guys are split on the next two. We'll go to number two. Astronomers have discovered that some large stars may collapse directly into a black hole without ever going supernova and estimate this happens 10 to 30 percent of the time. Jay and Evan think this one is the fiction. Bob and Kara think this one is science. Jay, hold my hand. And this one (laughs) is – that's not his hand. And this one is (laughs) – 
Science. Oh, oh my God. I'm happy and, uh, and intrigued. Yay, Kara. High five, Kara. Let go of my, yeah, let go of my hand, Jay. Jay, let go Steven. of my hand. Yeah. Hey, Steve, Evan and I were actually in an alternate universe during <laughs> science or fiction. We guessed correctly over there. For the alternate uh-huh. universe? In yes. several of them. Yeah. Mandela effect does not apply to science or fiction. I'm sorry. What? <laughs> Ooh, baby. Yeah, so this was uh, uh, this study. They basically just looked at a bunch of galaxies over seven years, and uh, they they monitored them for supernova and also any things that were changing in brightness. And what they found, first of all, they saw a, a star brighten significantly, although not supernova. It just got brighter, and then it faded away, but never went supernova. So okay. where was the cutoff? So what do it could you mean? Have been just a variable star, but okay. so did it nova? Like, what is it called? No, to, it didn't nova. It didn't supernova. It just got a little brighter. It didn't hypernova either. No, and then <laughs> and then, and then it faded away. Would um, this be a hyponova? <laughs> hyponova, no. yeah. So yeah, yeah okay. Yeah, I think so that the last gasp of a of a giant star burning itself out, but then it didn't nova or didn't supernova. It just faded away. Um, so they also wow. counted the number of supernova in these. 80 some odd galaxies over seven years and they found that there aren't as many of them as there should be mm-hmm. so we know from surveying you know the 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 sky how many supernova sized stars there are out there and their lifespan and you can pretty much calculate how much we should see if you have a big enough sample size like 80 galaxies and over a large enough period of time you know like seven years we know that we should have seen this many and we saw 10 to 30% fewer than we're seeing. And so they speculate that maybe those 10 to 30% of the supernova we're not seeing are because some stars of that size don't ever go supernova. They just collapse down to a black hole directly. And that maybe that that's what they were seeing with this one you know, bright star, which then just faded. Okay, that's it. That's what they got. That's it. <laughs> uh, are they coming up with a, any mechanism? Has anyone come up with a mechanism? Yeah. What about the mechanism? I guess not. Not yet. <laughs> not yet. So this is the new well, finding. Sorry, Steve. Without well, the, the mechanism, I can't believe oh, this one. This is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we may have to hold off on our negative strikes on this one until we know. Until we know. Look, Bob wants a mechanism. I want a mechanism. <laughs> we yeah, all want a mechanism. Nope, no mechanism for you. Uh, just segue to this, which means <laughs> okay. Bob, well, yeah. You first, you first in up. astronomy, first you have to see what's actually happening, and then you can figure out how it happens. Yes, right. Yeah, it'll come. It'll come. Right. So to be continued, sort of. Yes, right? but you're still wrong. Okay. <laughs> what? So uh. all of this means the fact that Jay and Evan are wrong means that in a in a new study, oh, scientists found that washing your hands Salt with water moon. at a hundred degree Fahrenheit. 37 degrees Celsius, killed more than three times as many bacteria as washing in 60 degrees Fahrenheit, 15 degrees Celsius water. That one is the fiction because there was absolutely no difference in how much how many ah, bacteria Ah, I guessed right. <laughs> that's awesome. It doesn't matter. Nice. And that's I what mean, I, I mean. Yeah. I don't believe it. Well, I just thought it was such a small it's number. It's just not hot enough, right? Well, it's not only that. It doesn't – nothing matters. What, you, the, what matters <laughs> is – Nothing matters. Uh, <laughs> nothing is so – so, so, so when you're washing your hands, what matters is the scrubbing. That's what matters. Yeah, yeah, Why? Yeah. That's what well, – that's and what, the chemicals. That's what gets the bacteria off your hands. It's the scrubbing. You the, don't need the, soap? 
Well, the soap I you mean, have, yes, you need the soap. You need soap to, helps. You got to be scrubbing with it something. Helps a lot. The the the, <laughs> the soap is what you know binds the oil and dirt and everything and gets it off your hands. Hydrophilic oleo. Well, and also the soap potentially, depending on it, like if you're in a hospital or a lab and you're using antimicrobial yeah. soap, it also kills them. Right, but it's but even then, it's the scrubbing is the thing. It, that's yeah, that's right. why so surgeons warm, like warm you've seen surgeons then. scrub in. They really scrub. Oh yeah, they teach you how to scrub when you scrub in. It's like yeah. ten minutes, five minutes of yeah. just with a brush with like this th- thick th- bristled brush metal. And going every. No, it's not metal. It's like it's like. No. It had this thick plastic, and you go through every nail bed and everything, your whole hand up and down. You so it's not just the happy birthday song and you're done? No, no, Not no, if you're no. a surgeon. It's a whole process. See, this yeah. is where science fails me. Because I spent <laughs> and, the majority of my adult life washing my hands in hot water. Makes no difference. Painfully, Kara. Oh, yeah? Scalding. Yeah, yeah. I always go like hot to the point where it hurts a little bit, and I'm like, ah, this is working, you know? Like I... I wash my hands in warmish water, hottish water, because it feels better. Same as when I'm doing dishes. I usually run the water a little hotter because I, it grosses me out to, like, wash food off of plates in cold water. Also, I think there is something to the heat, like, melting the food off easier. So now, you know what's awesome? I'm, after we're done recording the show tonight, I'm going to go and talk to my wife, and I'm going to be like, you know, honey, you just don't have to wash your hands in that, that hot of water. You really shouldn't be doing that. I mean, it's warm water is just as good, and I'll pretend like I've always known this. Yeah, yeah, it's a good idea. Yes, yeah, so I just I usually wash in in comfortably warm water. Yeah, yeah, there's no yeah. reason for it to be hot or for it to hurt. That that reminds me of a of a short story I read once where a robot surgeon never had to wash his hands. All the robot surgeon had to do was stick his hand in like in front of a blowtorch until it glowed red, killed all the bacteria. He was done. He would autoclave his hands. Yes. Yeah, auto-clave. I like that. That'll work. So, Kara, yeah. I suppose you're happy about this week, then. I am. I'm thrilled. I'm ecstatic. <laughs> 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 All right, Evan, give us a quote. Science is the acceptance of what works and the rejection of what does not. That needs more courage than we might think. Jacob Bronowski. And if you don't know who Jake Bronowski was, he was a mathematician, a historian of science, theater author, poet, and inventor. He is perhaps best remembered as the presenter and writer of the 1973 BBC television documentary series, The Ascent of Man, and an accompanying book that he wrote about it as well. Mm -hmm. Hey, Steve. Yeah. As we record this, Nexus is in 29 days, 10 hours, 20 minutes, 28 seconds. 28, 27, 26. That's right. It's on June 29th to July 2nd in New York City, and uh, Evan and Kara will be there. Yeah. It's Along true. with the rest of us. Yep. Nexus, N-E-C-S-S dot org. It's our annual conference. The SGU will be doing a live podcast recording on the stage. We're also going to be there the entire weekend. Most of us will be involved in workshops on Thursday. Steve will be in science-based medicine all day on Friday. And we are going to have a lot of incredible speakers, including James Randi, uh, Mike Massimino, who is a former United States astronaut. And cool. many more. So please join us. Go to necss.org for all the information. All right. Well, thank you all for joining me this week. Share us, Dave. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Steve. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. 
For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible. 